from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode 12 for March 8th, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by the senior strategy analyst at Parrot Analytics, Julia Alexander. Julia, hello. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I went on vacation there. Thanks for recording. We recorded last week or two weeks ago episode early. Uh, so I had a good time. And and thank you for working around my schedule, my vacation how, schedule. How was your vacation? Was it fun? Was it, it relaxing? It was. It was all those things. It was good. good. It's good to good good to get away and not uh, record any podcasts for a week, or you know, do work and just. I read a lot of books and sat on the beach, and it was a good time. Good. Time. Did you listen to any podcasts? I did listen to a couple of podcasts, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't do a lot of podcast listening. I, I did a little bit of podcast listening. Um, I have listened to podcasts on the beach before, which is very funny because you end up with that, like, I'm listening to my tech podcasters, but I'm on the beach and like, what's wrong with this picture? But <laughs> I mostly just read books on the beach this time and didn't didn't go for the podcast thing. That's perfect. Um, You got a little cold, but you're feeling okay? Gonna- yeah, I got a little cold. Sorry, listeners, but um, feeling, yeah, much better. It's always fun to get a cold now because you run through like a PCR and two rapid uh, yeah. tests. All uh, right. <laughs> Right. I did that. I had something and I I think maybe it was just an allergy thing, but I had two or three days where my, my throat was super sore. And I was like, well, is this it? And I, I ran the test through and it's like, nope, it's not nothing special. You just got a sore throat. And that's that's just how it is. I, I also wanted to mention when we're talking about uh, sound, background sound, somebody wrote in and said they got a little nervous because um, you had some sirens behind, out your window in Brooklyn and they were driving down the road listening to the podcast and thought, maybe thought they were going to get pulled over or something i don't know but we 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 try to remove the big uh the big noises or pause when the big noises happen but you know if you live in a city there's going to be noises and that's just how it is so you know i'm so sorry to everyone we (laughs) soldier on and i live in on like a very main street Mm. in brooklyn and so there's like there's there's never i hear sirens like there's never we all know we all we've all heard the podcast we know all about (laughs) where you live (laughs) all right um we got a little follow-up before we dive into some topics you know you do the show every other week and so many things happen this the pace of of um the news and developments in this field this is why it's so interesting that's why we talk about it it's really interesting um a couple of things in episode 11 uh so two weeks ago we talked about the evolution of the disney brand and i just wanted to do a a brief moment of follow-up that um yes indeed the netflix marvel shows are going to be positioned with all the other marvel shows on disney plus even though they have more mature content they aren't going to hulu in the u.s even though they could have done that they're putting them in disney plus this is our ongoing conversation about the the growing and changing of the disney brand um and they're turning on parental controls and i saw a lot of stories were like oh and they're adding parental controls and i thought those are already there they're just not turned on in the u.s market because they're literally on everywhere else so people in the u.s uh in about a week i think we'll be seeing the um you know daredevil and jessica jones and punisher and all of that on disney plus and yes there will be parental controls so you can lock your kids out from seeing the more adult marvel fair that uh, it, so it's every i felt like when that story dropped i was like downstream listeners already got this they, they knew this was gonna happen <laughs> Yeah, it was. I've been using the word inevitable to talk Mm. about a lot of Disney things lately. And this one felt maybe uh, not as obviously inevitable, but still inevitable in many ways. Yeah, I think the only question was if they did a little stutter step where they're like, well, we're not really ready yet. So we'll do it in Hulu for now. And in six months, we'll but they're just diving in, which is, you know, they which they should. 
And so, so here we go. And there will be more stuff like that on uh, on Disney Plus yes. going forward and in the U.S. And it already is everywhere else in the world, we know. But uh, in the U.S., in, in their primary market, uh, they're, they're getting with the program now. The other thing I wanted to mention that we talked about recently, so it's in follow-up, is CNN Plus. They announced the pricing. They're going to do a little introductory offer at $2.99 a month for people who get on board right at the beginning. And then thereafter, it will be $5.99. I assume that as the uh, Warner Media Discovery train collides that they will gin up some like more interesting bundles yeah i mean the thing i think i said this on twitter if they're willing to give you cnn plus at a three dollar um promotional fee they will find a way to bundle cnn plus in for free or which is what we talked about yeah to jason's point on a, a previous podcast cnn plus may disappear entirely and then they will just roll you into the hbo max discovery plus whatever it may right. be um platform my guess is that it will probably exist as a standalone but it will probably be primarily consumed as part of a bundle right like i feel like, like that plus yeah exactly that it's just a thing that y- you know yes you can get it on your own if all- you're like oh i don't care about all that fancy stuff i just want my cnn it's like all right you can do that but anybody who you know most people are going to have hbo max and maybe Disco- discovery or they're going to be interested in one but have the other and at that point the bundle will be the best deal so they'll get cnn plus as well and it'll all be there so yeah it does feel inevitable but there it, it is going to come out uh, this spring and there's going to be an, if you really want to get on board right away uh, 2.99 a month you get a little 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 perk but yeah it seems like this will be inevitably a thing that i don't pay for until they roll it into a bundle and i'm like all right okay i'll take it's like apple news plus it's like it's in the bundle i i mean i don't have to use it no, but i'll I take know. it i'll take the it. apple one bundle is what got me but it, yeah. yeah i i do feel like cnn plus at three dollars is if you don't have a not a decent amount of subscribers but if you don't see a little bit of a growth spurt. I mean, from nothing, anything is a growth spurt. But if you don't see like a little bit of a, oh, that's an interesting hill in subscriber growth, that's a pretty bad sign. If you're offer, you're effectively giving yeah. away a, a streaming service for $3. I will say, I think it also tempers expectations for a lot of people where this is not CNN for cord cutters. It is effectively right. priced to be like, we're provide- providing other infotainment and we will have some aspect of news, but this is not going to be your CNN that you're going to get through a cable bundle or through um, uh, like a virtual TV bundle. I still am not convinced that they aren't ultimately going to have a linear channel on CNN Plus, but it won't be CNN. It'll be like the CNN Plus linear channel and it'll have live stuff and it'll have not live stuff. And I mean, like with CNN also has pre-taped stuff, but it'll be kind of like that. But mostly it's going to be more like, you know, every day at five o'clock, the Anderson Cooper show comes out or whatever it is, but that's not the CNN show. It's a different show. Show, and it's just for streaming and it's more kind of on demandy than you know with linear second on demand first i don't know it'll be interesting to see how they shape it but it's not going to be seen which actually with the russian invasion of ukraine one of the things that has struck me uh, in the last week is i think there are a lot of cord cutters who are like hmm like i i want but something is happening i want to watch the news right now and and i think a lot of people i certainly went through this of like what news channels do i actually have and i had bbc world news for a while on fubo but it turns out that was a premium channel that they had just temporarily made available in a preview and i've got like msnbc but but i do have like the cbs news stream on paramount and there's an nbc news stream 
on uh, on Peacock. And th- there are a few places, but I, I do wonder if this is one of those events where uh, cord cutters are like, oh, hmm, do I have news somewhere that I can well, find? This- this was the interesting. I had this conversation with some pals, and I was talking about how it almost feels like the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine was one of the best times to launch CNN Plus because everyone's looking for something. Even if it's not CNN, they'll have their own version of it. Right. And a friend said, you know, but Paramount Plus and Peacock both have, you know, um, uh, CBS and NBC respectively their own news channels that you can access. And it was very funny to me in the way that. We, we, I say, like, I Google something or the iPhone is kind of just the replaced idea of what a phone is for many people. Like, it's just the iPhone. Uh, I feel like CNN for a, a generation of people has replaced the idea of, like, news in many ways where it's just right. like, I think of CNN. I, that's what I want to watch. I, via, via YouTube TV, I go back and forth between CNN, MSNBC, um, and I always check in on Fox just to see what the other side is saying. And it's like, I can go back and do that. But if I only had to choose one and it was like a very significant cord cutting option, CNN is ironically like the only news service I think of. I'm kind of like, that's where I would spend my money. And I think if CNN Plus can pivot in a way to find younger anchors that provide some aspect, though, of minute to minute news, they they can't take from their live feed. And we know that. I mean, we've gone over that in previous uh, uh, podcast episodes. But if they can find a way to do something similar that for a younger audience, like translates into what they want to watch, which is like have something on in the background it's minute to minute news. They have some experts come in. They have some reporters talk about what's going on, on the ground. Like CNN Plus actually becomes a really interesting proposition alongside the entertainment. But yeah. I think what we're seeing from the ads, uh, a buddy of mine who went to go see the Batman this weekend uh, said there was a CNN Plus ad ahead oh. of the Batman. And he was like, you know, it's funny. They didn't mention news at all. Like mm. it was just like it was like Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. yeah and it was like all that like. stuff. And so I think – I think that so back to the pricing. That's what I think the two ninety nine fee really is. I think it is both like a, a way to get people, and it's a promotional deal. It's like when Hulu is offered for a dollar, Paramount Plus is offered for a dollar. Like you can go in and grab it at a good price, and they hope to retain you once you're in. But I also think it tempers the idea of like this is your CNN that you're going to get. Um, right, right. Oh, I wish you'd mention ABC is also also has oh, a right. streaming channel in Hulu, yes. so um, you can you can get that. You, you know, you can get some news if you have one of these services, but um, to your point, like uh, there is also this sort of feeling for people who have like come up with seeing the, so many world events through the lens of what's on CNN right now. Um, that's incredible power of the CNN brand. But as we've talked about multiple times, it's locked up in cable deals. And so I I feel like they've got to. You know, we'll see what CNN Plus is. I'm fascinated by it because, like, I think that a linear channel is a must-have. Um, there's a, a a trend that we should talk about more at some point. Again, is I know we've touched on it. Is linear streaming channels in general? Um, uh, Joe Steele, uh, Joe Rosensteel wrote a piece for my website Six Colors last week about uh, Amazon rolling out a new live TV guide for streaming, and that Apple sort of does has dropped the ball here. They've got kind of a sports grid, but they don't really have. Uh, an accurate kind of reflection and it's funny that we're talking about it but like there's value in linear uh, with the way joe put it is you got sometimes you just want to watch something while you're folding laundry and a linear channel can do that and the next challenge for a lot of these interfaces is going to be can you aggregate you you know what do you subscribe to okay that means you have these linear channels and put it in i, I know like a cable tv guide grid but yeah. A lot of people have linear channels. They have some value, but you may not even know that they're there. Like Peacock, I feel like 
almost hides the fact that they've got a couple dozen linear channels. Uh, you have to kind of drop into the channels interface to see them all. But um, I don't know. I, I think there's a trend there because I, I think we've gone so hard into on demand uh, yeah. because it was exciting and new. But like there's still value in linear. And I, I think that there's opportunities there. Yeah, I'm I'm really hopeful that as more cable companies um, launch streaming services or as more cable companies get into that. So you have your Comcast, you have which NBC Universal and you have um, Discovery with Warner Brothers um, as they as they kind of get into a place where they have all of these linear channels that are still very important to them, but they have a very on demand audience. What they need is something that creates them uh, that that ensures that they remain a like necessary tool. Mm. And so, if, if if which is then what you open, if we think of an app like Twitter, like you open it daily because it's a tool for many people. Social media is like a thing. Um, if you think <laughs> about how you know how can we get people to open up our streaming app, we know what is it beyond entertainment that they're looking for. News is really the core, the cornerstone of that. And I think the question that we'll see play out with CNN Plus and some of the other linear. Um, or some of the other offerings that are included in these streaming services already is whether it's a better bet to include it into your general offering and ideally build up that and have people open it to news and they want to use it for news, but then they're in the app already. They're already there. Um, or yeah, if there is a strong enough niche audience where your investment level is much lower and your margin levels are a little bit lower, but the revenue that you're building, um, juxtapose the operating loss that you're taking in to run it is, is like, is pretty high. Then you've got a point where you're like, we'll just run a niche service and it doesn't require much on our end. I don't know if that works for a company like Discovery and Warner Media. I don't know if that's where they're like, we'll just run a niche product versus, um, another company looking into just doing some form of news, which already, which we already have. But it'll be very interesting to see play out. Um, my my other prediction is I would not expect to hear much about CNN Plus numbers uh, yeah. unless they are shockingly good. Right. I imagine they will roll it into um, subscription stuff for HBO yeah, total, Max. Total subscriptions for the whole yeah. thing. A little bit like how um, how Paramount now remember it's Paramount's Paramount Plus um, can say like total, and they they've been doing this for a long time. Even when they were CBS, it's like it's total, and it's like well that's Paramount Plus and Showtime. And they're like yeah, well. We're not going to break it out for you. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Fair enough. You can hide if you want. All right. We'll keep an eye on that. But um, let's move on to a, a, a really meaty topic. Uh, Disney Plus is going to do it. They're going to join almost everybody else in making a lower cost tier with ads. <laughs> wow. Inevitable. Yeah, we're Inevitable. back to that. Inevitable. I had a conversation with a friend um, a few weekends ago, and I said, what Disney is promising is like truly an insane thing, where they're saying we're going to hit 230 to 260 million subscribers for Disney Plus by 2025. Um, a reminder that Netflix is not at – uh, uh, they, they're not at 250 yet, and they've been operating for eight, nine years. Yeah. It, the thing is, right? So if you're looking at what the main two issues are with Disney Plus, like how do we get more content? How do we get more subscribers? I mean, Bob Chapek is doing exactly what they what they're going to do, which is we're going to increase the amount of content that we have, and we're going to widen and broaden the amount of content we have, and then also we're going to make it cheaper for you to join. And and I think when this came up, a lot of people were like seemingly shocked, which was shocking to me. I was shocked by people's shock because um, this is just an obvious play, but it's a, an extremely obvious play for Disney, where if we think about why Disney likes Hulu, it's advertising. Like Disney has specifically said, 
Hulu for us generates an insane amount of ad inventory and like it's a great thing for us. Disney runs broadcast channels, which and cable channels, which are reliant on advertising. Like Disney's big thing is advertising. It was only a matter of time before it came to Disney Plus. And I think what we saw really happen was one, they were growing and they're kind of hitting uh, a slowdown in growth in, in UK and, and whatever. They're, they're kind of figuring out what their next step is already. But two, I think they saw other people introduce advertising tiers and it was not a negative point it was like hbo max was like this is great for us and like it, there was no huge negativity surrounding this and so they went cool we're gonna offer the advertisement tier and that also means we should expect in my opinion a price hike of about one to two dollars within the next eight to 13 months a, a, a fact that i wanted to mention is in this hollywood reporter story that i'll put in the show notes hulu brings as much money in from ads they say about on the ad tier as it does from its overall subscription revenue that blows my mind yes right and so for all of us i think that there's definitely a bunch of us and there are probably a lot of our listeners who are like oh look i'm not going to pay for the for the uh, subscription service with ads i'm going to pay more and not see the ads and i get it because i do that but um just to be clear <laughs> hulu makes as much money from ads as it does from subscribers that's huge it's huge it's a huge opportunity and it's a huge you know classic marketing it's also good better best kind of marketing which is you know we get you in the door with this price and then you don't like our ads well pay us a little more and then you don't have to see them like it's a it it obviously it's working for people because disney is is stepping into this in a way that they they could have constructed this from the start with ads and they chose not to and now they're revising it so i think that sends a pretty strong signal that they are looking at what's happening with hulu and they're like why are we not doing that with the 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 this huge streaming service that we're building that's growing rapidly um and and how do you drive growth how do you tap into people who are who are otherwise not gonna not gonna subscribe and give them that low price to get on board i do wonder what this means in terms of how they construct uh disney plus originals um i don't know if you've noticed this i i have hulu without ads and i have paramount plus without ads and one of the things i notice is that um I can like like um, Hulu does a bad job of this or or tends to do a bad job of this where I was watching that submarine show uh, from from Britain and it is it wasn't built with commercial breaks, but they fade it. They fade it out. They do the rapid fade out to put in an ad, except I've got the ad free version of Hulu. And so I still get the rapid fade outs and then it fades in again. And it's so unartful. Um and Paramount Plus, like Star Trek shows, have commercial breaks built into them, e- even though it's a streaming show, and because Paramount Plus has ads, and so they've built in commercial breaks. I wonder. I, I don't know what you think about this, but like, I imagine this means that that Disney Plus is going to start recalibrating its shows. I mean, maybe they'll be more artful and they'll do like two separate files, and there's the commercial version that fades out, and there's the one the the non commercial version that doesn't. But like, you're going to have to start building in app act breaks and thinking about places to break a program and up to now they haven't had to do that yeah i mean i think that's a conversation i hope they're having i think it's also just as easy for them to go we're going to do non-skippable to pre-roll ads and this is how we're going to introduce it and and, and not break our content up we'll just make you sit through two ads before it starts which is also terrible and i Mm -hmm. i don't i don't necessarily know if they'll do that um i think the question about advertising that's really interesting with Disney specifically is that their its audience is almost built around um, 
services that still use ads. And I think if we look at kids, if we think of Disney Plus still being as a very heavy kids app, at least for the time being until Disney figures out how to broaden it, you know, what do kids watch more than anything? It's not linear TV, it's YouTube. They're sitting through ads all the time. And they're sitting through ads on videos that are not designed around ads. They're sitting through ads on videos that there's like four pre-roll ads. Like they are sitting through it and they don't care. And so I think for Disney and for parents, we're kind of used to this, the idea of having it as a as a thing that their kids are watching and they like watch, you know, sit through one show a week or two shows a week that have a couple of ads in it is a really interesting just like uh, a, a point to consider versus I think if you looked at the HBO audience, the HBO audience is coming from people who paid for cable, who paid for something like HBO, who paid, uh, who likely paid for Netflix without ads, right? And it's all these things where they're used to not having ads. So I think introducing the ad tier there was much more of an interesting perspective than Disney, which again, like it just makes the most sense. Like Disney has built this entire company around the idea of advertising. Um, I do hope that they calibrate it in order to make it work. And I think a lot of their shows are designed already with ads in mind uh, on the non-Disney Plus original side. And so as they bring more of those shows in, like they bring Modern Family back in, they bring whatever it might be, like those shows have built in commercial breaks. I do think, I don't know if they'll necessarily design around advertising. Like, I wonder how that would go with them talking to talent who are coming into Star Wars or Marvel and they're kind of like, think about ads. And like, it might not be an issue, but I could see where they're like, you know what, we'll just run a pre-roll or two pre-rolls and then we'll just charge extra for if people want to have a pre-roll on Mandalorian versus if they want to have, you know, something else in the middle of a licensed show. Like, I think those are very interesting conversations that they'll have about how to structure it. But I do wish, to your point, Jason, exactly, that more people at the companies thought about advertising breaks because like consumers do. Like, I was tweeting about this with the Disney news and I was like, I hate that like you go to half of these apps and they don't think about commercials the way that we're talking about it right now, or at least it doesn't seem like it. And so many people are like, yeah, I hate it. Like it comes in, it like cuts off at weird times. It doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's, and it's like, yeah, it's like just, and I get that on the very like long list of things they have to prioritize it's probably not super high because they're like we just have to get ads in there to ensure that our deals are met um but it's like if you're thinking about your overall experience uh it does come into play and i think the last part of the equation with the disney plus ads which comes up all the time i like tweeted about it in full sarcasm and then it did not get taken sarcastically and i was very upset but is like whenever a company introduces an ad tier, the first question out of everyone's mouth is like, when will Netflix introduce ads? And it's like a joke at this point. No, the suggestion is not a joke, but like the question that comes so fast has become a joke within like a very like specific segment of people on Twitter who talk about this all the time. Because it's like they've said over and over again, they probably won't introduce ads. Now, you know, does Netflix now feel a competitive pressure they did not feel two years ago does netflix now st is netflix now stalling its growth in certain a tier um, um premium countries is netflix you know like all these questions that were not relevant three years ago are suddenly very relevant which may lead netflix to go we can explore the idea of it but my assumption is that netflix has been so committed to the idea of not doing ads for so long that it's like core to its philosophy and core to its like public perception just because one streaming service introduces ads in a way that makes a ton of sense for that company and that streaming service does not necessarily for another company right now. Right. There are different flavors of free. I mean, I could see a scenario where Netflix says, 
all right, what we're going to do is we're going to expose the base part of our library by putting some of the first seasons of some of our older originals on a free tier where you can watch them and there will be ads in them. But, you know, to give you a taste of Netflix or something like that. But the question is, is that something they even want to build? Because that's going to take a lot of effort to do something like that. Or are they happy? I think the the even better example is Apple TV Plus, where based on Apple's whole thing right (laughs) like the apple thing i can't envision them doing ads on apple tv plus because they have this like we're apple and this is a premium service and it's a very high quality and you pay us and we give you something and we don't need to let ads get in the way which i mean there are people out there are like but there are ads in the app store and apple has like i i know but like there's what apple wants to project and with apple tv plus i feel like what they want to project is um, this really, really clean, streamlined TV experience. And so I, I just, I think it's, I think you will never see ads on Apple TV plus, even though they could make more money at it because it's not, it's not who they want to be. And I think that's probably true for Netflix too. Yeah. I mean, I, I like genuinely, whenever we think of advertising, first of all, the companies that we're looking at are very important, where Disney has very strong relationships with advertisers, and Disney can command very strong rates for having ads on its programming. Like, And that's a thing where, first and foremost, when Disney is promising, you know, like three times the margins or whatever it might be on their streaming product, when it's still operating at a pretty high loss, like that's a, that's the thing they have to figure out. How do we um, bring that, that uh, margin closer together or whatever it might be? That's one. Two is Disney is projecting huge growth in Disney Plus that is sustained, that is sustained. And while they had a great Q1, they had I think like twelve million new subscribers that they added. It's not necessarily going to stay that way all the time. It's sitting a point where Disney Plus is like they have the new Marvel, they have the new Star Wars, they have some other things. Like when was the last time someone spoke about a Disney Plus original outside of those? You know, Disney Plus feels like no sending this to a friend. It is a, um, I call it a timeshare streaming service where I go for like six weeks. It's great. I open it once mm. a week and it's phenomenal. Sometimes I open it on the weekend to watch like uh, cartoons, but it's not, a, a, it's not for me, it's not a Hulu and HBO Max or Netflix where I'm opening it constantly right. looking for something new to watch or yep. movies. So if the inherent value or the perceived value then for consumers is that Disney Plus is a timeshare option and Disney Plus is something that you can unsubscribe to and just come back to whenever you want to watch the next show. Retention might become a, a bigger question as it hits the saturation point. So how do you make that less of an issue? You introduce a cheaper ad tier where people are like, oh, if I'm only paying four bucks a month for this, you know, it's better than paying nine bucks a month for it or eight bucks a month. Like, I don't care. Um, and the final thing is as advertising technology gets better, as it becomes more targeted, as it becomes a thing where the advertisers themselves are saying, we want to move more to streaming than we want to be on linear. And that change is still happening. It's nowhere close to what it, where it, need, where it will be, but it's, it's happening um, pretty um, consistently. Disney gets to be in this awesome position where they're like, we have the ad inventory on Hulu and that did really well. And we want to move the ad inventory. Uh, we want to increase ad inventory at Disney Plus, we want to be able to bring stuff over there. We're going to bring new shows in, um, and so it becomes a really worthwhile deal. And the last point is Disney is going to do what a lot of these other companies are doing, which is we're going to bring back all of our exclusive content. Those are hundreds of millions of dollars in losses that Disney is losing out on the licensing front, and that's hard to make up for if you're just relying entirely on subscribers. So when Disney goes, okay, we're going to you know cut out two hundred million dollars. Um, of licensing fee, licensing revenue in order to bring back these exclusive shows, 
how do you make up that revenue? Advertising is kind of an easy way to go. This is going to help us grow. It's going to bring more people in. And also it's going to allow us to cover the losses we have and invest more in content. So that's like, again, like the word I used on Twitter and the word I've been using throughout this podcast is, of course, it was inevitable. Like this is where it was always heading. And to, to your point about Apple TV+, Plus, Netflix, it is not inevitable that Netflix will get there. There's more room for conversation around it than there was three years ago. But it's not an inevitable point the way that it has been with Disney right. almost since Disney Plus launched. Now, talking about taking your content back, I want to talk about uh, what NBC Universal did with Hulu. Yes. But before we do that, I want it's a very special moment here on Downstream. I'd like to introduce our first ad. <gasps> I know it's a sign of podcast has really made it that somebody actually bought an ad on our show. So this episode of Downstream is brought to you by Microsoft Lists, your smart information tracking app in Microsoft 365. Keeping track of information is something that's in everyone's job description today. Quite simple. Writing things down is what works for simple lists, but it can get overwhelming when you need to stay on top of hundreds of items and get others to pay attention and act. Microsoft Lists is a Microsoft 365 app that helps you easily track information and organize your work the lists are simple smart and flexible so you can stay on top of what matters most to your team track issues assets routines contacts inventory and more using customizable views and smart rules and alerts to keep everyone in sync with ready-made templates you can quickly start lists online on the new mobile app for ios and directly within microsoft teams and because it's part of microsoft 365 you can rely on enterprise ready security and compliance uh Making lists is very important. Uh, it is having a good app that will let you keep track of that stuff. I use lists to run my life, essentially, and our whole household runs on lists. So, you, you know, definitely, uh, especially um, if you're in the Microsoft world and are using 365, which I am, uh, check out Microsoft lists because, you know, your list just got a whole lot smarter and you can get more done with Microsoft lists. Go to aka.ms slash ms lists for more information, videos, demos, blogs, and a whole lot more. That's aka.ms slash ms lists. Make a list and let it flow. Thank you, Microsoft Lists, for supporting Downstream and all of Relay FM. Look at us. We did an ad. Amazing. Thank you, Microsoft. Thank you. So NBC Universal's taking its ball and going home. It's taking the uh, next day airing of NBC shows off of Hulu as of September. Um, and going by by mean taking its ball and going home, I literally mean uh, putting those shows on Peacock and nowhere else because um, I'm sensing a theme here, Julia. This seems inevitable. <laughs> this podcast is now is now called the Inevitable Podcast. <laughs> it, it is all about inevitability today and, and Microsoft it, Teams, but you know we'll get back to that later. <laughs> it, it, you know what's funny, Jason is like I, I, uh, on the one hand, it felt inevitable in the way that like. When we looked at, you know, when you look at Apple now like versus 10, 20 years ago, it's like, oh, would Apple become the biggest company in the world? It's like, oh, that feels inevitable based on like what we know now. And so the idea of, of looking at NBC and Hulu, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that seems inevitable because they'll bring it back. But there was a really hot moment where everyone was like, D does NBC Universal want to be all in on Peacock? Like, do, do or do they like the idea of licensing out to Hulu and having that very, very lucrative revenue come in for them? Um, I think what this really says is that it cements the importance of Peacock to NBC Universal. It cements the idea that they are willing to take the short-term hit for a hopeful long-term gain. And until now, that was something – it was still up in the air. I mean, we talked about one of the earliest podcasts of Downstream. We talked about the idea of 
NBC taking Law and Order to Linear and not to Peacock. And there was a question of like, why wouldn't you support your streaming service? And, and it was a question a lot of people had. Um, and now this really feels like, okay, they're in, they're trying to figure it out. Um, so it was a, it was an exciting uh, uh, moment for me personally, as someone who has absolutely nothing to do with it. Oh, they're, like, they're all grown up. Look at this. Yeah. They're taking this seriously. Where they're taking the I mean, we, we know that from their most recent earnings, they've got 9 million paid subscribers. I think it was 24.5 or 25.4 million um, activations because they have the cheaper tiers as well. It's like a whole thing. Um, but, you know, 9 million paid, it's it's not quite paramount plus uh which is i think at 32 million across um it's not a few it's not disney plus by any means um but like is it, it's clearly enough alongside the advertising stuff that they come on they kept from it it's obviously enough for nbc universal's team to say like let's continue seeing what we can do and let's see what that looks like when we have exclusive uh, exclusivity back i will say um and then we'll get your thoughts jason I want to, i'm interested in what you have to say i i this was the first weekend i watched snl on peacock instead of hulu because i was like oh i might as well get used to it not as intuitive they have a lot of work to do on the ui on peacock um but fine and then once we were in peacock it was like oh yeah peacock like (laughs) and one of the things that they said as part of this announcement that made me raise an eyebrow is it not only brings everything home but it allows them to do better integration and and make things happen in interesting ways and i i feel like this is the implication that their jimmy fallon plan which got waylaid by the pandemic is kind of coming back around in their mind which is once we know it's on peacock not only can we cross promote it but we can start to do other things like the jimmy fallon plan was when jimmy fallon um tapes a show um, we're going to drop it live or we're going to drop it like at, at at 8 p.m. or something like that. Instead, you won't have to wait till 1135. We're going to just drop it then. Saturday Night Live, I start to think, you know, on the West Coast, they do actually air it live now. NBC affiliates have nothing else on on Saturday night. So they air it live, which always killed me as a kid. Is you had to wait, wait and watch it uh, taped. So it was taped from New York at Saturday night. But, you know, you could uh, you could live stream the rehearsal. Uh, right. Like th- there are lots of things you could do once you've got this this whole thing and it's all in house and all you're unencumbered by your deal with Hulu. You can try to be innovative in premieres. I think the one that they mentioned is um, you could premiere a show uh, before it airs on the network or 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 run episodes ahead of where it is on the network on Peacock like they are free to explore in a way that they couldn't when Hulu's contract was there. And I think that's smart because you should explore, like it shouldn't be a one-to-one with the network. You should be able to make Peacock have advantages because it's digital and you can, you don't have to just slot things in on a, on a linear uh, network schedule. Exactly. And I, I will say, I know that sometimes um, I can be a little uh, a Debbie Downer when we talk about oh, some of this speaking stuff. Speaking of but, SNL, sure. Yeah. But I, I will say it, it is a really exciting moment of innovation in programming, which we haven't seen in a very long time. I remember when thinking about what you were just saying about the way that they can experiment with like the Jimmy Fallon stuff and premiering earlier before on linear. I think HBO Max uh, in like 2020, 20 or 2020 i think it was 2020 um industry was out which is like one of my favorite shows and the show was doing at least based on what they were saying they didn't give any numbers but it was doing decently on hbo max and it was an hbo show and what they did was they took the final six episodes and put them on hbo max ahead of them being on hbo yeah. which was something that i like 
they can't do the, a lot of their shows because of their contracts. But it was fun to see them go like, I guess the way that they co-financed it, it was like, we can, we can have this on our, on our platform. It's fine. Um, and it was great. Like you watched it then and then people caught up with it on the linear side and every like industry had this like nice month long moment of everyone kind of figuring it out. And I kind of hope that Peacock gets there, especially because they have so many excellent programs on so many different linear channels where if they can pull in things from sci-fi, from USA, from right. actual NBC, like they have all this ability to try and find an audience where they're not reliant on working with Hulu to make sure they're not beating out, like they're not getting ahead of Hulu or they're not ruining their relationship, uh, excuse me, um, impacting their relationship. Um, and now they get to say, to your exact point, they get to go and be like, what actually makes sense for our audience and what makes the most sense in order to bring subscribers in and possibly keep them? Like, I think, well, we talked about this on, on one of the last podcasts, but the question with Hulu specifically and Peacock was how much of uh, Peacock's audience was cannibalized by Hulu. How many people were going like, I don't have to watch this on Peacock because I'm on Hulu and I prefer it, whether right. it's what I have, it's an experience I prefer, whatever it might be. Like, I know anecdotally... All of my friends and myself, we would watch a ton of NBC shows always on Hulu, even though they were on Peacock. And it was just like, I'm on Hulu more. Like, I tend to open this up more. It's where like, I'm going to watch The Dropout, which is a Hulu original. And then I'm going to watch Law & Order. I'm going to watch whatever it might be. And now that I still want to watch Law & Order, I'm going to have to be forced to go to Peacock. And I'm hoping that they will take that momentum of having people have to go to their app to watch their favorite show. I hope that they'll use that to really experiment with things and try to figure out how to do something cool that's not just like, this is a home for shows that aired yesterday and you can watch them here now. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, as you've mentioned, they're foregoing a lot of um, licensing revenue by pulling their shows back. Yeah. But, I mean, it's the right thing to do. Like, if you can weather the storm, it's the right thing to do. You really need to make Peacock the place for people to go. Exactly. This is like, if people want to dig into this for their own pleasure, whatever it might be, um, if you look at earnings reports, they don't necessarily break out streaming. Some of them do. Paramount does it the best, in my opinion, outside of like Disney and, and um, Netflix. Um, go in and what you kind of want to do when we're talking about um, companies like Comcast and NBC Universal. Um, AT&T and Warner, although that's changing, but Discovery is a good example, um, is go in and there's three distinct numbers you want to look at. One is the um, revenue and operating loss of the linear channels they still operate. And what you'll notice is that the revenue is still okay, but their subscriber growth and their is, is slowing. Like there's not, it's like constantly declining, but the growth is high or sorry, the revenue is decent and the operating loss is not as bad. Um, looking, look at streaming, the growth is spectacular for the most part. It's where everything is going. Um, but the revenue is still relatively low and the operating loss is insanely high for the most part because they're trying to put in so much money to get it off the ground. So when we think about what this looks like for a company like NBC Universal and Peacock, you know, you have to balance both teams. You can't just say, well, we're going to take the revenue that's coming in from the 75 million, 80 million households that we still are in people are using us for, we're not, we can't just take that, put it into streaming and then leave them dry because we need to also keep those subscribers happy because that's where our revenue is coming from. But we know that number is dwindling 
At the same time, we have to figure out a way to bring them over to our streaming um, side where the operating loss is pretty high, but it has the biggest growth potential. And once you kind of look at those and you kind of listen to executives and you you know read um, very smart people on it, you get an idea of why a lot of the content decisions are made or you get a better feeling for why content decisions are made. So you can look at Disney and advertising and you can expect to know that. I do it for fun. I think it's a very fun way to kind of like just go in and see what they're saying. Earning season is my favorite season. Um, But if you're like listening to this podcast and you're very interested in it, all of this is public information. Um, And it just helps to kind of know why NBC Universal would say Law & Order is going here and not Peacock or why we're making this exclusivity play um, and why we're not going to take in the, the licensing revenue. Yeah, you can learn a lot from listening to the government-mandated disclosures of public companies because they don't want to talk about all of it, but there's a certain level that they have to talk about it. And so you get insight into why they're doing what they're doing because they need to tell their investors why they're doing it. But we get to know, too, even if we don't invest in it, which is good. Um, Okay, let's let's turn the page. Uh, to Gotham City and talk about the Batman. Uh, they're not a spoiler. We're not talking about the movie itself. We're talking, of course, on this show about what it represents. You had an interesting uh, tweet about it. We're looking at so theatrical. It's in theaters now, but there's this whole idea of of what that that we are going to continue grappling with, which is like what goes to theatrical first, what goes to streaming, what's the strategy there. And your comment on Twitter the other day that I thought was interesting is more conversation about like looking to cover the four quadrants. Um, you said the more studios focus theatricality on serving a predominantly male young audience, the more room streamers have to focus heavily on underserved audiences in underserved genres. Not to say streamers have to be the only ones in the game, but they currently are. I thought this was really interesting because like the counterbalance of, oh, well, you know, most movies these days are going to be like superhero movies and they're going to skew male and they're going to skew young. And there was that, that data about the Batman that was like it, it performed pretty well, but um, but it was a male skewing audience that that women didn't like it as much. And there weren't as many women there. Um, and I like how you took that and said, this is an opportunity, right? Like, because the, if the theaters are going to show this and it works for them and that's great, but that means like the rest of the people, the older people, uh, people who are a, an audience that's more female are, um, they're looking for entertainment too. So it's an opportunity to do something that the, that the theaters won't. Exactly. There, I love whenever a movie comes out in theaters and does well or does very poorly because it just opens up like the same debate every two what weeks. What does it but, mean? Yeah, and it's just like, <laughs> it, like it's the same debate. And I think you know, I had really, I had really great conversations on Twitter this last week, especially with this guy David Poland, who is very, very smart. Um, he, but I think he used to be a writer, um, kind of a, a just a guy on Twitter who has been in the industry for a while. Very, very intelligent man. Um, and we were talking about this idea of like, can the movie industry the theatricality business come back and he brought up a good point which is extremely fair and it's like we don't know because no one is playing into it like the studios are at this point where they have to kind of rely on guarantees and while nothing is a guarantee you have a pretty good shot at knowing that super um, spider-man and batman are going to make decent money because they have spider-man and batman versus like a rom-com uh starring jennifer lopez and owen wilson or um a drama that people don't like maybe has a big cast but people don't really know what's going on they don't feel like they have to go and we've talked a lot about that um, on the podcast before so i won't get back into it but what i will say about 
the Batman specifically is that theatrical audiences have always, for the most part, been young male. Like that's who they that's who drives a lot of the big revenue at, at, at theaters. What's changed is the amount of movies that have been released has dwindled in, significantly, and the studios now are, are owned by parent companies who aren't necessarily looking at theatrical as a, a tier, as a core importance. It's still important. I'm not saying that like CEOs like Bob Chapek um, and um, uh, Jeff Schaller out here being like, we don't care about theatrical. Like they do. But at the same time, what their shareholders are asking about and what the, the street is asking about and what journalists are asking about is their streaming service. Where are you at with the streaming services? So for a company like Disney, which just announced that they're going to send, I think like, 80 they're going to send like eight to ten films from fox to hulu and release only what they've called um where there's precedented success to theaters so that's like your avatar like your free guy whatever it might be they're saying like well we can now send these movies to hulu and it will help with subscribers or whatever it might be and the question that the batman brings up and questions that movies like the batman bring up is we know these do well and we have the data to prove that we don't know if there actually is no longer an audience for the other movies. We've just removed the supply. You cannot calculate demand if supply has been removed. We can only calculate <laughs> demand if the supply is there. Now, my assumption, this is my assumption, and again, I, as I just said, I don't have data necessarily to back it up, is that even if you were to go back to pre-COVID numbers, even pre-2010 numbers in terms of how many movies people were releasing theatrically, studios were releasing, I suspect you still would not get strong turnouts for things like rom-coms and some dramas. I think those movies make more sense heading towards a streaming service where people want to watch it, but they don't. Like, it's just a value thing. Um, that said, I think, like, there's this constant debate that only superhero movies can work. And that's not necessarily true. But we also have to acknowledge that it's become much, much harder to get people into theaters. Yeah. That might, you know, and so... Last point on this, uh, and then I'll hand it over to you, Jason, is I have a lot of friends who are kind of consistently like, um, you know, if people, if the movies are there, people will come. Like this idea that like they will go seek out content. And I think though, what we have to acknowledge is that if the studios are saying we're not going to release it, you know, and then people are like, well, we, it's all dependent on if the studios to continue, if go back to theaters. But there's a shift. And the re if, when reality shifts, when the things shift, then the new reality is what we have to kind of go by. So there's a potential that some of these movies may go back to theaters. And I suspect that they will start to release a few more in theaters as they get back into a place where, you know, um, more people are heading out again post-COVID. But we also have to acknowledge that this is a new reality where people are looking to streaming. And at, for the next three to five years, a lot of the importance for half of these films, unless they are almost guarantee 100 million plus movies, are going to go um, to streaming services. So that's what the Batman has become like a, just a, a symbol in the way that the actual Batman is uh, of this like never ending debate about who movie theaters are for or who movie theaters are supposed to serve, you know, 2022 on. Yeah, it's I, I it's all well said by you. Um we don't know the the whole idea. This is our first episode, right? Was like movies are back, movies are dead. Uh I think was the title. Um we don't know. I'm sure there's going to be an audience for theatrical. I think some of the skew happens to be because of how much content we do have in our houses. So like you said, you have to be motivated to go out to the theater by something. And 
the kind of content that will get people like you got to see it in the movie theater will get people out there. And there may be other content that people are like, oh, yeah, but I want to go out to the movies. It's fine. It, It was already trending this way that things that are familiar and things that have spectacle are the things that are going to force you to go out and not wait for it to come out on home video. Like the reason that the franchises do well is because once you like a franchise and then they withhold it from you, like spider, the Spider-Man movie is not coming out until on digital till the end of this month. Right. It's been exclusive to theaters. And like, mm-hmm. if that was a random movie. People are like, oh, I'll catch it later. But like, but no, it's Spider-Man and a Marvel movie. And, and like, that's the power of franchises is to get you to want to see the next thing. And then exclusive theatrical, you, you have to go, out and see it otherwise you just can't get it or it's something like dune which you know bad timing but like dune the thing that i always heard from people is like oh you really got to see that on the big screen which i didn't but like because it's a a a spectacle and you know that uh, it was already trending that way so it's going to keep trending that way um but but i think to your point we don't really know because things haven't gotten back to uh there are a lot of other issues that are are affecting theatrical attendance that um, have nothing to do with our overall sort of like cultural opinion of going out to the movies. Exactly. I know a lot of people who love going out to the movies who have not gone out to the movies in years and are not going to go out quite yet. So um, that's just a data point. Like some people are back and some people are thinking about going back. And as for me, I've been to three movies, I think, since the pandemic started. Um and, you know, it's fewer than I would have. <laughs> and they were all franchises, right? They were all franchises. I'm like, well, I, I really need to see this in theaters. It's the power yeah, of the franchise. It's, it's very funny to me that whenever people have these conversations and they bring up a point of like, I understand why studios, especially, again, who have parent companies, who have like this other big equation where they're like, you know, if we think about how it used to be, they were like, we have our TV division, we have our theatrical division. Um, and then the theatrical division also had the pay one, pay two windows where they then got a bunch of revenue from kind of selling it off or licensing it off at that point. But it was a much simpler uh, mathematical breakdown. It was kind of like, well, this equates to this. And now you've got streaming, which is like an ideally profitable business for a lot of these companies, but they need content to serve it and they're pulling back all their exclusive content from other ones. So they're losing on licensing and they're trying to figure out what to do with all their big movies and their small movies. And it gets really frustrating, I imagine, for studio heads who are kind of like, we would love to send all of our movies to theaters. Um, that's not necessarily plausible in 2022, might not ever be again. But it's it's funny whenever these conversations happen that I just like would love for people to take a step back from the emotional, the, the, the emotional aspect of it, where the, the idea of going to a movie in theaters is so important to so many people. It's this thing of like, to your point, Jason, like I've gone a few mo- fewer movies than I would usually do because of COVID. Um, and because a lot of the great movies I'm watching are on streaming. Um, and so I'm kind of like, I'm very happy at home and I go out for um, Spider-Man or Batman or whatever it might be. Um, But whenever this conversation happens with executives, with journalists, with analysts on Twitter, it becomes this like emotional fight over what is the future of theatricality. And the answer is very complicated because a lot of the 
DNA inputs that we used to rely on to make sense of it are changing radically in ways that we have never experienced before. So whenever people are like, I know that this is the future, including myself, I have to remind myself all the time, like, no one knows anything. And anyone who claims to is absolutely lying. (laughs) Because their executives I talk to don't know what, like, they're, they're making assumptions based on their gut after being in the industry for 20 years and based on the the data they have and based on trends that they're seeing and based on their very smart strategy and research and biz dev teams. But like, no one knows what happens post COVID and what what people want to do and how consumption behaviors help be, will actually change. So what I'll say is, I, I read this tweet earlier, and it was trying to make sense of why the Batman performed well. And I remember laughing a little because I was like, "Well, it's a Batman movie. Like, yeah. it, there's it's it's Batman." And but that's the thing where if you're a studio head, you're spending 150 million dollars on a movie. You've got 18 movies. You know that you're only going to own probably over the course of 52 weeks. You might own 16 to 20 weeks of the movie theater. You're going to only probably release four to six movies in theaters. You know, four to eight. Where it's like, and what are the guarantees? And all of a sudden, the thing that I'm chuckling to myself over is in part the answer where it's like, well, why did Batman do well? And it's, well, it's Batman. You know, like, why will, why will Harry Potter likely do fine? It's Harry Potter. Like, it's like, it's a very easy thing versus if you're saying, um, you know, we hope this movie will do well. I think a great one is like Disney with Free Guy, where it's like, we hope Free Guy does well and it ends up doing well. And they're like, great, there's an audience here. But you can also have it go the other way where it's like, we hope this movie does decently and it doesn't. And then you're kind of like, should we have just made that a streaming thing? Should we have not have taken the public should we, should we should we have we got should we have gone a different route so it's all very interesting it's all very fascinating it's all very terrifying um especially if you are in charge of of those companies that make money <laughs> on it uh but i will just say including me if you see me doing this on twitter call me out anyone who claims to know anything about what's going to happen does is lying because no one knows there it's unprecedented and nothing right. is inevitable we don't know what the inevitable is here and people see moves that backfire and they're like, it's, it reminds me of sports stuff where it's like, you know, if you kick, if you kick the field goal uh, or, or you go for it and you don't make it, uh, that's a good example. You go for it and don't make it in football and people are like, oh, you shouldn't have gone for it. You should kick the field goal. It's like, well, well, no, it was a good call, but there's, there's risk because there's risk in everything. And it's a little like that when you see failure in the entertainment industry, it's like, oh, why did they do that? And the answer is uh, people don't really understand like a lot of entertainment, uh, decision making is making is placing bets on the roulette wheel right where it's sort of like well they're not all going to be hits but enough of them are going to be hits for us to make it and if you've and your good executives just make smarter bets and are a little bit further up but you know nobody knows anything and that's the to take another line from sports that's why they play the games like nobody knows what is going to happen um, yeah. And and it, we're in times of real confusion here. I think that's a Tim Goodman line. Times of confusion. So it's even more so than usual. People don't know. Excellently summed up. <laughs> All right. Let's do some um, letters before we letters. go. It's good to, good to get some letters in. Um, this is uh, our first letter from... Uh, Claude, uh, this is sort of follow-up. I enjoyed your discussion about Broadway shows and streaming. Uh, did you know that every show on Broadway has been taped since the 1970s? Many of huh. these are single-camera back-of-house tapings, but newer productions are shot with multiple cameras. Um, 
from this episode on broadwaynews.com when a show is chosen the archive films one performance with multiple cameras crew members have already seen multiple performances of the production so they're prepared for the action on stage um, you can go if you're in new york you can go watch them at the new york public library for performing arts so they're available to be viewed screened in person this is a little bit like how you can go to the museum of television and and see all this stuff that's not you know they don't have the rights to publicly distribute it but it's available for archival purposes and research purposes which is interesting um and then claude goes on to say i also saw this comment from from uh, a user on reddit some shows already have feature film rights tied up which can prevent a stage production from being filmed and release i don't consider the didn't consider the fact that some producers might want to presume film adaptations over releasing a tape performance um which is absolutely true just as an aside like th- that's the other option here is you want to make a film performance and you, you if you release the uh, stage performance it means that you're probably devaluing the film adaptation and i totally get that that's a, a perfectly valid thing um claude also says the national theater in london has been distributing productions to u.s movie theaters for years um and uh, mentions fleabag as a as a before yes. it was a tv show was a performance um by phoebe waller bridge and they streamed a bunch of those two theaters one of those fathom events kind of thing so love to your maz claude thank you claude um yeah fascinating i think i think it's more the productizing of the recording of the of the uh of the stage play where it's like uh a new possible venue for for money for producers i also think theater provides a really interesting um moment because i was reading this um, um, article in the Hollywood Reporter today about podcasting having its moment with like TV shows and everyone being like everyone's adapting podcast IP and it's like where people are looking to for their next stories and I think the Fleabag um, comparison plot is an excellent one where I think there's a lot of potential for them to look at these plays and go we want to do something with it and we want to create something um, around it but we don't necessarily think this is going to be a, Han- uh, a Hamilton I almost said Hannibal. That would be a great musical I would wow. watch. Um, but like a, a Hamilton thing where we, where we need um, Lin-Manuel, where we want the original stage cast. I think exactly. the broad... I think the Broadway kids would want that. Like, I think the theater kids would really – that's what they want, and there's niche services for it. But I think there's a bigger opportunity outside of the original cast and outside of just filming it um, based on plays to turn them into something else. And I think following West Side Story um, and Spielberg's version of it, I think we'll continue to see increased interest in musicals and stage um, adaptations. But I don't think it will be um, a straight like of filming from – the play to streaming services, although I would love that. I think they'll start to go in the other direction where they're like, that's great. There's obvious interest in this. We're going to do a adaptation of it. Um, a la Rent, a la Sweeney Todd, which could work. Yeah, I feel like there's there basically there's tiers, right? The there are going to be the plays that are of course going to be made into movies. But I think there's a tier below that, which is like, well, you know, they're not really biting with the film rights or we don't really think that this is going to do it. And it's not and we're not going to do that. So instead, we're going to do uh, a live on stage kind of thing and make some money out of it that way. And I that that's where I think that it will happen is that um, not everything is going to get made into a movie, but you capture that original Broadway cast and then you sit on it for a little while. And uh, Come From Away on Apple TV Plus is a good example, I think, where they actually were going to make a film of that and it fell through. But they they mounted a. Uh, a stage recording and and uh, put that out on Apple TV Plus. So maybe we'll get a little bit of both. But yeah, the money's in the film adaptation. If you if you get somebody to pay for a film adaptation, you know, you know take the money because that's that's what you want. That's really mm-hmm. what you want. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Claude. Um, BJ wrote in, and this is a, a good good bit of feedback. It's just uh, on the latest episode, Julia offhandedly dismissed concern about spoilers for Spider-Man because it had been out for several months. The movie may have been out for months, but I won't but won't be available on digital services until late March. Perhaps during the ongoing pandemic, the spoiler window should remain in place until something becomes available online. There are many of us who will not go to movie theaters during this crazy time. That's fair. I can do that. I I struggle with spoilers because I do feel like after a while, my my attitude has always been like, look, um, I'll, I'll be patient for a little bit, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to not talk about it forever. Um, but this is a good point that there are people out there who right now I can't say, look, if you want to n- not be spoiled on Spider-Man, go see it. And people are saying, well, I'm, I'm not comfortable going to the movie theater. And I, I think that at this point, um, I, I think that's reasonable. Um, I yeah, think there will I, come a point where I, I don't think that anymore, but at this point I think that's reasonable. I agree. Also, we, uh, yeah, and we are a business podcast, so there's should be no reason to spoil anything. So yes, absolutely. We can definitely do that. We'll hide that stuff somewhere else uh, when we need to. Uh, okay, this is from, I'm going to say Sarvanian, uh, who says, hi from India. I, after hearing the discussion on Netflix's release schedule, one notable example um, was Arcane. They released three mm. episodes every week, with each week covering a certain arc in the story. I would be very curious to know what they learned from that. Love to your mother, Sarvanian. So I thought that was a uh, uh, good point. Like, there's some data for um, for Netflix to collect about how um, a non-binge drop schedule, a weekly schedule, might work for them. Yeah, I I looked into this um, for a piece I wrote at Puck when Netflix first released their um, new, like met their new numbers. They have the website now, the top ten website, um, and it was really interesting. Arcane had just came out, um, and Arcane is a very fascinating uh, development for Netflix because it is a, a a strong title. So remember in, in former in a former in previous podcasts, Jason and I have talked about how Netflix does experiment with weekly. Um, it's just never with like top tier shows. Uh, it's always with kind of reality programming or it's with lower, it's with, um, series that often come from international. So they don't actually have the rights to binge it. Um, and so they kind of do weekly uh, over there, but arcane was an actual experiment that felt like an experiment and if i remember correctly and i could be wrong on this but i remember that the engagement for that compared to shadow and bone season two which had been a binge drop was actually slightly higher uh, because week over week over week it saw an increase in viewership more people were coming to it and the most people came to it by the end of the show they came to it they had heard about it though week after week and by the end of it the engagement and viewership uh, viewing time i should say was much higher and I think what Netflix can learn from that is like people want weekly, where Netflix really benefits from this. Um, and actually, I'd be very interested interested to know how viewing habits are like in India. Like, I wonder if um, Indian audiences prefer weekly or if they prefer binge. Um, but I know with Netflix in the United States um, and and um, uh, Europe, they get to be in a really interesting pers- uh, interesting point, I should say where they get to experiment with how they want to do it. They get to be like, cool, we know that Weekly probably has uh, uh, some really important uh, engagement for us. So we're going to do, you know, half of these shows are going to go weekly. But we also know that our audience loves the binge. And so we're going to promise or whatever it might be that shows like Stranger Things are going to release all at once. You don't have to wait for it, whatever it might be. How they do that, I don't know, but my assumption from what they took away from it, I haven't talked to anyone at Netflix about it, but my assumption is that it performed decently enough for them to continue experimenting with it. 
Um, a great example to to, to look, keep an eye out for is whenever um, ex- executives say, um, the, it's always along the lines of like, you know, we saw um, interesting like returns or we saw this. They'll always say in earnings calls. It means that it was pretty positive and they're going to keep experimenting with it, but it's not positive enough for them to commit to it. Um, and so I think we'll see more of that with Netflix, same along the lines of the interactive stuff where they've seen, I would imagine, because they keep doing it, some interesting data points come out of it, but they're not ready to commit to anything without having much more to go off of. Next letter is from Steve, who writes, if a show isn't great, does binging make it seem better than if you watch one episode at a week as a, at a, one episode a week? For example, I like some subgenres of British crime, but when I have to watch them one episode a week, like Line of Duty 6 or Suspicion, they seem worse than other similar so- shows I've binged. Certainly, there's less time to think about problems, but I think there's more going on. Perhaps seeing more twists and action set pieces and dramatic moments at a time makes you more likely to preferentially remember the best of them. That's from Steve. Interesting idea, right? Like, I do mm-hmm. think there's probably some truth in the psychology of watching things at different paces makes you experience them differently. Yes. And I think your your point about, you know, remembering the best of it or just remembering plot points, I think that's what's core to a really good weekly show is where people remember what's going on versus when you binge especially if you're binging 10 episodes what happened in episode two it's like i you're like i don't remember it's like i'm sure something happened but i i genuinely can't because it all blends together it starts to feel the tv critics are going to come for me for this i don't mean in terms of quality but it starts to feel like a 10-hour movie where you're kind of (laughs) like i don't like remember what happened i know that it's it's important to this plot point but like i don't really it's funny because on netflix the what happened on the previous episode is very important to me and it's not on any other streaming service but i'm like i genuinely don't remember like i you could not tell you what happened and then they remind me um and i think the downside to weekly though is that if it's bad to your point like if it's not a show that you're necessarily engaged with or if you're gonna fall off of after episode one or two it gets really hard to convince people to come back in this is like what i call the hbo problem where hbo shows tend to not get really great until like the episode three or four or five and then it's like you've got to convince people to spend like five hours to get into your show like this was the succession issue and it's like and, and it's just a hard thing to do in a streaming era um but i think that's why we're seeing a lot more of what amazon and hulu do and i i, I suspect will become much more of the norm which is like the first three episodes drop and then it goes weekly so they give you the idea of like what the show is here's the tone of it you can decide by episode three if you're in or by the end of episode three if you're in or out um and then it's like cool now we have you we're going to bring you back in weekly for the last seven episodes yeah i i was thinking of um Network shows that used to be on and then off for long gaps like Lost that I've I've talked to people who watched Lost back on streaming mm-hmm. and said that it was or or watch it for the first time. And it turns out, I think a lot of the problems that people had with it, not all, but a lot of them. And I'm a Lost apologist, but um, went away when you were not watching one show a week for four weeks and then yes. three weeks off and then another five episodes and then 12 weeks off and like it, it, that when you can just go through them and if there's a bit of momentum you can watch two or three or four in a day and other times you're watching it every day and you're certainly not waiting months for the next installment that it plays better and that's one of those challenges of networks doing serialized stories is Jeez, like they even doing twenty two episodes a year, there are these enormous breaks, and it, and it's hard to keep the momentum up, and and that is, I think it's true, like especially with serialized stuff. But Steve, I think you're right. Um, 
I think there's something to be said for something that is short enough that you can kind of binge it and um, it's more disposable um, and like you're more forgiving of it. I think it's easier. Um, I think this is basically what you were saying, Julia. I think I think making appointment television, you have a higher bar. But if it's something where it's sort of like, yeah, it's it's kind of crappy, but it's fun and I'm just watching it in the moment. It's a lot easier to do that, to justify that than to be like, am I going to, of all the shows that I could watch right now, am I going to go back to that one that was, you know, kind of okay? Um, do you know, yeah. do you know what I think really benefits from a binge? And I'm thinking of what I choose to binge always. I, I would say 95% of the time it's comedies. Like It's like I did reservation dogs in yeah. one sitting and I had a blast. I was like, these are, I did it in four hours or four and a half hours. And I was like, this is great. Like, this is how I want to watch. I did the same thing with Abbott Elementary on Hulu. It was like seven or eight episodes. And I did it all in one sitting. And because it's 20, because they're like, and because Abbott Elementary airs on ABC, so it's actually 22 minutes, um, like you get through them so fast. And I feel like with comedies where the whole thing is like, you have to like, like these characters in the setting and like, this is really important that you get to know them. Comedies are way easier versus dramas. Like if you're asking me to binge, especially a show, Lost is a great example. I love the idea that people are binge watching Lost. Like, like shows like Lost, shows like Stranger Things, where I, you're like, not only is it dense but you're like wait what happened like game of thrones is another one where i'm like i give credit to people who binge game of thrones because it's like that's like it's just it's too much i need the week to like read on reddit (laughs) it's a lot but but having the ability to watch it you know even if it's two or three times a week and get through it in a short period yes i do think a lot of the grumpiness that people feel for a lot of these shows is more about losing the momentum and losing the losing the plot yeah. And if you can watch the whole thing, it it goes it goes down easier. Um, yeah, I don't know. Interesting idea, Steve. That's a little philosophical question. Uh, one last letter. This is from Chris, who says, I have been a cord cutter for years. However, I now feel overwhelmed with content from all the services. Much like what I do with email, I cleared my TV inbox by unsubscribing to everything. I now live a much simpler life with good old digital antenna. Using Plex, I DVR all my shows, which cuts out the commercials for me. I was surprised by how many shows I was paying for that I now get for free. I guess I'm a stream cutter. Are antennas still a thing or am I the only one? Do you see over the air programming going away? Love to your mothers, Chris. A stream cutter. That's obviously now a new word. Um, you got to be lucky to be in a place that gets over the air, but it is true. Um, and and if you don't want to set up a Plex DVR or something like that, TiVo even sells a TiVo box that is that is just for over the over the air broadcasting. And you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get programming. You're gonna get networks, and you're gonna get some of those things that run on the carrier signals, like Cozy TV and stuff like that, that have got reruns and stuff. And that that may be enough for for some people um or you can just judiciously add back some some uh streaming services as you go i think it's an interesting idea i i don't think over the air programming is going to go go away for a while because there there is still you know there's still money in it but i do wonder once the cable carriage fees go away uh what happens to to over the air programming but i, I don't know what do you think i i i think i 100 percent agree with you I also think, Chris, you are like DirecTV's favorite person. Like, I'm just going to nominate you um, to them. But it's funny because what you're, what you're talking about is exactly the biggest issue that whenever I talk to journalists or whenever I talk to executives, like it's the issue. Like they're, and they're, and in the United States, especially, I don't know if you're in the US, I assume, um, but in the US, especially where it's so fractured and you're like, 
I and, and you're like I feel like I'm paying for more and also getting less somehow because I think back when we used to be cable or over antenna whatever it might be you got your sports and your TV and your news like it was all in one thing and now you're kind of like I'm paying you know eighty bucks a month for entertainment I have no sports I have like hardly any news right um and so I think yours you're actually I would imagine you're not alone I think what you're doing takes more effort we, and so i think a lot of people will pay to not have right more, to have less effort right but, but free, like free linear over the air is a thing that like it, yeah. it does kind of work for a reason it's easy to do you're just getting it free over the air i agree like yeah there's there, there probably a lot of the issue is going to be you do have to put up an antenna and you do have yeah. to have something that receives those things whether it's something attached to plex or whether it's that tivo over the air or some other kind of thing like that but it is it is there. It is this linear thing, and 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 uh, if you get the if you get the signals, like it's a really high quality HD signal these days. I live behind several hills that bl- completely block my access to the big antenna in the Bay Area, so I can't do over the air. I thought about it um, back in the early days uh, when I when satellite channels didn't cover locals. I was going to switch to satellite then, and until they added local channels, I couldn't do it because I you were supposed to supplement with an antenna, and I don't. There's not an antenna large enough for me to get over the air but over the air is an option like for people and and if you're if you're i would say leaving stream cutters aside for a moment if you're a cord cutter and you aren't doing something that is an over-the-top kind of cable replacement and you get it, you can do an antenna like you can use one of these systems and get back all your local channels without paying for them <laughs> And it's that's pretty good. Like the, it's going to get you a lot of sports. <laughs> it's going to get you a lot of network TV programming. And it's going to get you the you know the nightly news. And it's like it's not going to be quite the same. But it's not a bad supplement to being a cord cutter um, if you are someplace where an over the air antenna works. So, but if you're Chris, you just let it all go and you're just watching Law and Order when it's on on whatever night it's on and all those Dick Wolf shows on that one night <laughs> and it's all there for you. The NFL on the weekend and you know, go to town, Chris. So I, I, do I do appreciate. I, I, I mean, there will come a day where they're like, we're show, we're shutting down the spectrum and selling it, and that's the end of yes. free over the air TV. It's gonna happen, yes. but I don't know. It seems like people are people are making money on it. It's gonna be a while. I think it's gonna. I really think it's gonna have to be the collapse of like cable TV that finally does it, where they're like, we're not gonna even try to do cable TV anymore. It's just internet stuff, and then that's gonna yeah shut off the yeah. spigot. I think. I was going to say, like, not for some time. Uh, yeah, I'll just say this has nothing to do with Chris's question. I'm sorry. I just love that you and I, Jason, always come back to Law and Order. And uh, I'm like, new, yeah. new, new listeners are like, they just watch Law and Order. Law and Order is like the center. Like, it's, it's, it's uh, Sector Zero of, uh, or what is it in Star Trek? Sector Zero Zero One is Earth. It's like, what's at, what's at the center of Sector Zero Zero One? It's Law and Order. That's what's there. <laughs> This podcast sponsored by Dick Wolf. Yeah, that's right. The, the two, what what's on our Microsoft list? The answer is Law and Order shows. That's there's a list. Just we're not going to share it with you, but trust us, there's a list. Okay, if you have a question for us, you can send us an email downstream at relay.fm. Uh, you can also tweet at us at downstream pod. Love to your mothers. We'd love to hear from you. You can find Julia at loudmouthjulia on Twitter and, of course, parrotanalytics.com. You can find me at jsnell on Twitter and at sixcolors.com. And, of course, you can find every episode of this show at relay.fm slash downstream and on your podcast app of choice. We will be back in two weeks where there's going to be more because there's always more stuff to talk about about streaming media. But until then, Julia, thanks a lot. Thank you, Jason. We'll see you all in two weeks. Bye, guys. <laughs>